May our songs of praise be a sweet song in the ears of God on high. And may our proclamations today delight you, our Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Romans chapter 9 this morning. Think I'm laboring over this too long? No? There's a lot of concepts here. There's things you could pass right by. And this morning's one of those things. Because it's, the words are simple words. They're self-explanatory. But sometimes when you think of the, the implications and the applications of some of these things, they, they can actually be life-changing. And, uh, and I pray that they are at least in our doctrinal understanding of things. Um, So I'm going to ask you to open in Romans chapter 9. I'm going to read a few verses and focus really on one of the concepts that is in this passage. So verses 17 through 24, I'll read to you this morning. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he wills he hardens. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. And here's the glory. Even us, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Oh, Father, may we praise you this morning that your promise was for the Gentiles as well as your chosen people Israel. Amen. So there we have... Another of the apostles' very famous rhetorical questions. (laughs) What if God, wanting to show his wrath... Now, he just spoke about the Pharaoh. He spoke about the hardening. You remember the hardening. You've read Exodus, I hope. If not, stay afterwards and we'll get you to read it. Pharaoh's... God hardened his heart. And here, Paul is suggesting that perhaps God raised him up, one of the great leaders of history among men, just so he could show that the power of man is nothing next to the power of God. What if he, wanting to show his wrath to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. You remember last week we talked about the potter. We talked about the clay, right? Paul's purpose in this verse is to offer an explanation of what he said before. That is, the omnipotence of the potter and the impotence of the clay. 
The potter is omnipotent, all-powerful. And the clay has no power at all. It's, it's lucky it can remain a lump on its own. And at the same time, he reveals something essential about himself. Something we shouldn't miss in our relationship with God. For the first part, the apostle puts his explanation in the form of a question. Now, we're not to be misled by this tactic, as though Paul is uncertain of God's purpose in election. All right? Nor are we to presume that he's just throwing out ideas. Maybe God did it for this reason. Oh, maybe he did it for this reason. That's really not what's going on here. You know, as if to say, what if God did this, and what if he did this? That's really not Paul's purpose here. He's making a declarative statement here. The fact is that God is wanting to show his wrath and make his power known. And to do so, he's enduring long with humanity. You ever wonder why it goes on and on and on? Jesus died 2,000 years ago, right? In fact, something like 2,000 and what, 27 or so? You know he was born in 4 or 5 B.C. because they didn't do the calendar right. But anyway, um, born a long time ago, suffice it to say, right? And it's God's divine prerogative to bestow justice on some and mercy on others. He could have just bestowed justice on all and then none of us would have any hope. Now, he's already used the Old Testament examples of Pharaoh, as we've seen, of Ishmael of Esau, right? And on the other hand, he's used the examples of the Israelites and Isaac and Jacob. God raised up Pharaoh, a mighty prince of Egypt, for the express purpose of showing divine greatness juxtaposed to human greatness, right? Remember how long he toiled? Moses came to Pharaoh. He had the staff. He threw it down. It became a stick. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was a stick. It became a snake. you got to have your wife in the first row. That's the way it works. Otherwise, I'll listen to the recording next week and say, no one corrected me when I said the stick became a stick. The stick became a snake. I'm like Indiana Jones, you know. I hate snakes. I just don't like snakes. But what happened? Well, Pharaoh had as much glory as that, too. His magicians made snakes. You know, that always bothered me. But, you know, imagine if Moses just came and said, Let my people go. The God of Israel has shown himself to me. And Pharaoh cowered and let the people go. Where would be the story? Where would be the glory? God loves the story. So he plays it out. And he lets us see the glory of man is indeed something. It's indeed great in some sense but it's nothing next to the glory of God. Never underestimate the glory of man in this regard, however. The glory of man is indeed great. God himself has said so. And I remember that scene, and I know I've probably told it to you other times, from a a film called Gladiator. You know know the film. Some of you do. And those of you who don't, you got to... Go see the film so that I can use the illustration. But um, the slaves, the gladiators, are coming into Rome for the first time, and they see the Colosseum that they're going to fight in. 
I don't know if you've seen it. It's just a ruin today, but it is magnificent. It is amazing. And to this day, you know, there are buildings built in that era that we can't build today. Do you realize we can't build the pyramids? We don't have the technology or the money to do something like that. They were covered with limestone. They were gleaming in those days in the desert. We can't do that today. It's too big a task. Some of the stones are as big as this room. And so when the slaves came into Rome, one of the slaves from Africa who'd never seen anything like this looked up at the statuary in all of its intricate glory and ornate workmanship and said, I did not know men could build such things. The glory of man can astound us until we see it next to the glory of God. And God wants it that way. That's why, that's what he's saying here. I raised you up. We, we've got to understand, Pharaoh wasn't just a king. He was king of the world. He was a god to them. They worshipped him. He lived in awesome splendor, in an awesome place on earth. And God says he raised him up so that he could show his glory juxtaposed to Pharaoh's. We may remember his words in the Babel incident. I always suspect the Tower of Babel was this really great structure. It was, it was um, well-designed and, and uh, artistic and great statuary involved in it. Maybe I'm wrong. We don't know. We don't have a lot of information on it. But I imagine by the text that it was a really great building, a really great effort of man. But do you remember these words from Genesis 11 where the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. That's God talking about the incredible glory of man. Nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them. If I don't do something to stop them, they will realize the ultimate extent of their rebellion against me. Nothing could thwart the power and the spectacle of human effort unless it was despoiled by divine glory and divine intention. A simple touch of heavenly power and all the effort and machinations of man come to nothing. Let us go down there and confuse their language. That's all he had to do. They couldn't communicate anymore. It was like herding cats, they say. Language was the gift of God, friends. Language was the gift of God to enhance human effort and to give us a glimpse into the mind of God. When human effort goes astray, the gift must be withheld in order to contain evil. That's all he had to do. He didn't take away their ability to build. He didn't take away their grandiose plans. But he did take away the one thing they needed. Because, friends, whatever technology was available at the time, one piece of low tech you had to have, and that is a mass of humanity to build these structures. That, of that much, we are certain. People have to communicate. He just zapped the language. God stunts human effort in order that he may offer another of his great gifts to man, time. We think of time as a curse. In some ways it is. But have you ever thought of the good things about time? 
Don't we say time heals all wounds? I don't think that's a verse of scripture, but um, it is a wise saying. Time puts a limit on suffering. Usually when we're suffering or suffering in pain or something, we, we say, how long? And the doctor will estimate, well, it usually only takes a week and you should be getting better after that. You know, time, it's like, I can look forward now in time and there'll be a limit on my suffering. Time is a gift from God in some ways, but time is at the same moment a gift and a curse. It's a gift in that it offers man a period of reflection. God gives us a time period so that we can reflect on ourselves and on our accomplishments and our desires in order to turn from our evil ways and repent. So time's good in that sense. He gives us time to think about it. It's a curse because it seems there can never be enough of it that every man, woman, and child will eventually repent. I think we, if we know the scriptures, we know that's not going to happen. If time went on infinitely, man would still not turn away from his sin. Why? He doesn't have the ability to. So for the moment, for a limited period, the Lord our God will continue to endure his creatures in all of their rebellion, in all of their iniquity, and in all of their idolatry, even though he hates all those things. Think about the word endure. Suppose your wife said, someone said, he did. does your wife love you? And, you, and, and she said, well, I endure him. Not, not adore. <laughs> endure. You wouldn't feel loved. The Greek word is pharaoh, endure. It signifies to support as a burden, to carry something, or to bear pain and or suffering. I looked up indoor, it said Pharaoh, and it said, uh, see bear. So I look it up, first of all, it was the animal bear, and I had to go to the second bear when it was carrying something. An English definition of endure is this, to suffer patiently. God is suffering patiently because of our sin, which he hates. But he's willing to do it because he has a greater purpose in mind. Endure, Pharaoh, means to embrace pain. God is willing to embrace pain to give us time to repent. It says, with much long suffering. Do I have to define long suffering for you? It's long and it's suffering. Right? Notice long-suffering, though, comes with uh, an implication. It's not eternal suffering. It's long, but it ends. And you can be certain it ends. And there are signs that it will end. And there are prophecies that it will end. Oh, it will end. God won't suffer with us forever. There's one other definition that pertains particularly wonderfully to our verse. And... As to the definition of the word endure, it means to remain in existence. Are you still here? I endure. Right? I endured it. He who endures to the end will be saved, the scripture tells us, right? He who endures, he who remains in existence will be saved. And so what is time for us? What is a reprieve from destruction is for God, what for us is a reprieve from destruction, is for God a tumultuous waiting period of enduring a suffering of his own. 
It's a period of enduring that is putting up with. He's putting up with us. He's striving alongside the very thing he hates, which is the otherwise unrestrained sinfulness of man. In fact, at this times, if I may say it this way, that he almost can't take it, so he has to ameliorate it, take away the language, flood the earth, any number of other things. He just can't watch what he created to be good become so wicked. He created in his own image. And he suffers patiently watching us defile the image of God that exists in us. In the sense given in Romans 1, if you remember, God speeds up the process of man's natural tendency to sin by withdrawing from striving alongside him. He withholds grace. And so we read from Romans 1, for this reason, for what reason? That man turned the truth of God into a lie, for that reason. He he. He suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, it says. And I think it's instructive to our times for us to consider the first response of evil men in the wake of divine withdrawal. What was the first response? Paul wrote this. Even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Homosexuality was the first response of a people given up by God. They lost the sense of who they were in nature, and nature matters to God. He says, likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Some years ago, when that whole seed there was bad but not nearly as bad and confused as it is in our day i said to someone do you um do you think god will judge the world for all of this rampant homosexuality and he said to me very wisely according to romans 1 the rampant homosexuality is the judgment upon the world leave us to ourselves in our lusts to conceive things that we were not supposed to conceive. And so God may withdraw and leave us to ourselves. He can display his wrath on some and his mercy on others, and men will cry out, why is God so harsh? And God will answer, why are men so evil? And men cry out, foul, foul, how could you choose some and not others? And God cries out, how, in my holiness, can I make a way to choose any of them at all? We've got to turn Godward in our thinking. We think it's all about us. Do you know coming to worship is not about you and what you get out of it? I really prepare and I hope you come and are blessed by what we do here. We sing praises to God. We hear from the word of God. Unabashedly and direct we hear from it. I hope you know that honors God. Getting something out of it is way down the line of the purpose in worship. You worship because you're a Christian and you know who God is, and he's worthy of it, so you do it. We love to do the checklist. Oh, the church did this. Oh, it met my need here. Oh, it met my need here. Well, that's all great, man-centered stuff. But you're here for God. 
You're here because it's a duty. You're here because it is a commandment. I still have 10 of those. God cries out, how in my holiness can I make a way to choose any of them? And so the apostle offers an answer. He says, well, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And if you remember last week, prepared doesn't mean create. I want to make a distinction there so we don't walk out of here thinking God's busy in heaven making and creating all kinds of people to destroy. That is not what we're talking about here. He has a lump of clay. It's not humanity. It's fallen humanity. And he's performing a miracle because it all deserves to be scrapped, but he's going to save some of it because he's merciful. That's who he is. Who can complain about that? But remember this. That alongside the long-suffering of the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he wants to make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. It's a two-sided coin here. There's two things going on at the same time, always, in the heart of God. And if you've got your doctrine straight, and if you've finally discarded that man-centered view of reality and adopted a God-centered view, then you're no longer troubled by the truth. And so we come to accept that some are chosen and some are not, and it's God's prerogative. And if Romans 9 doesn't mean that, I challenge anyone to tell me what the apostle means by such language. That's a quote from Lorraine Bettner. But still, people are vexed by the fact that God alone gets to do the choosing. It's because he's both, both merciful and just that he vents his wrath on those who deserve it. Right? And he pours out his mercy on those who don't. He's both merciful and just at the same time. And so he vents his wrath on those who deserve it. And he pours out his mercy on those who don't. I think that's a good way of saying that. How is there anything but righteousness in such a display of grace? Consider two biblical statements side by side. We're going to go through the scriptures a little here. Maybe you'll remember these words. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the midst of the Garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, I don't know how soon it was after that commandment that they ate. It seems like God left the scene and they ran right over to the tree and ate. Um, for all we know, it was a thousand years. I mean, I don't, we don't know. We can guess, right? I think it was very soon. I think it was very quick. I don't think Adam and Eve got to really enjoy the perks of Eden, baby. I don't think they, they got it. So in the day that you eat, you will surely die. And then a few chapters later, it says, so all the days of that Adam lived were 930 years, and then he died. In the day you eat, you'll surely die, but Adam lived 930 years. Now, I've heard people say the Bible could not possibly be the word of God because there's so many contradictions, and that is a case in point. First, God said that Adam would die in that day that he ate of the tree. He eats almost immediately, and we read a few paragraphs later, that he went on living 930 years. 
If such a thing is difficult for us, then I suggest we have not seen God as he is. We haven't seen him in relationship to what Paul's describing in this verse, enduring with much long suffering. If it's difficult for you, then you don't see him as he reveals himself throughout the whole of Scripture from beginning to end to be. You miss the point of the purpose of God in creation. You've misunderstood the attributes of God, the great mercy, the grace of God. If you misunderstand that he didn't follow through with that promise to the letter to the man when he sinned. And you've missed the message of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And for that reason, there's no meaning for you in the cross of Christ. If God is not a merciful God, who withholds punishment on the guilty, as we see all throughout Scripture, then I think we've missed the whole point of the cross of Christ. Paul wrote, Jews want a sign, Greeks want wisdom. The great philosophers, the Greeks... Jews seek after a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block. To the Greeks foolishness. But to us are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Imagine that. Jews want a sign from God. Right? And Greeks want a great school of thought. And what do we do? We preach about a... Man dying on a cross. That's where the meaning in life is for us. That he had to die on that cross. Or there was no hope for us. Now the Lord of this world, who am I talking about? I'm talking about Adam. Remember? God named Adam, which is Adam, which means man. God named Adam. And then Adam got to name everything else. He was the Lord. Let's use a small L for the Lord here. But he broke the covenant with God. We see one bite of the apple, but what does God see? See, this is how man-centered we are. One bite of the apple? Your hand in the cookie jar and it all has to come down? That's what we see. But God sees iron-hearted rebellion against one who was good to him. He sees fist in the air idolatry. He sees an exchange of one God for another. And by the time of Adam's death, the world was already filled with heinous sinners. Idolatry and murder had taken place. Why did the world continue despite the fearful warning of God? It was due to the fact that God endures with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath. That's why. Though everything in his holy, glorious heart would have burned them out of existence, yet he relents of his wrath. He held back his fury. He's suffering patiently by watching men destroy themselves when they have all the gifts to be glorious. You know, churches love to display signs. You see signs all the time on churches. Um, I know I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I thought it out, and I'm going to say it anyway. It's totally politically incorrect, okay? You go by the church, you see a sign, God loves you. There's two signs I'll never have on the church. One is God loves you. Why? One, I put that out there. Because how do I know that Esau might not drive by? Right? How do I know if he loves everybody indiscriminately? It doesn't say it. Anywhere, 
Oh, but pastor, you misunderstood. God so loved the world. I know. And he loved the world in Noah's time, so we fixed it. You dig what I'm saying? No, I won't put a sign out that God loves you because it's too complicated a subject to do that. The other sign I won't have is uh, bean supper Friday night. Make, Make reservations now. Make reservations now, bean supper Friday night. I don't know how evangelicals got into this bean thing. Who cares about a bean? Um, So those are the signs I won't have. It's just more complicated than that to me. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Not indiscriminately, he doesn't. He's enduring some of the vessels of wrath, long-suffering them, and others he wants to reveal his glory to. But the sign would be wrong. It would be blasphemous to say the opposite of what God says. He specifically tells us this. It make you feel uncomfortable that I said that? I'm a little uncomfortable with it myself. But I've always known it. Why does the warning of certain and immediate death of the sinner not conflict with the reality that the sinner yet lived a long life in the sight of God? It's so that God might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of his mercy. Friends, a bit of doctrine for you. Adam is in heaven, just so you know. Now, I'm going to try to explain a glorious truth to you that at the same time, and at the same time offer a personal application of the same truth. All right? We know that election, which ought not to be controversial, certainly as a term, it's all throughout Scripture in the New Testament, right? It means chosen, right? Who are the Jews? Again, remind me. The chosen people. No one ever had a problem with that the Jews were elect, right? But I'm going to use that as an illustration. Election is the purpose of God. And and we read it right here in Romans 9. For the children, Jacob and Esau, not yet being born nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not one of the purposes of God. The purpose of God is election. And he wants it to be known. He wants it to stand. Not of works, but of him who calls. And at the same time, I would warn you not to rely on election to be saved. That was the mistake the Jews made. Don't take for granted, oh, well, I walked down the aisle, oh, I did this, I did that. What have you done for me lately, Pastor Ken used to say. At the same time, I would warn you not to rely on election for your salvation. That was the mistake the Jews made. And when I say rely, of course, God does it. You you can rely on it. But don't assume that you're electing, you can go about your business. There's a twin truth to this maxim of God's unconditional electing grace, and that is that good works are the fruit of salvation. You got them? Remember gut milk? Got good works? Yeah, I do all my good works on Sunday so that I don't have to go to church. This is how we think. Good works are the fruit of salvation, not the cause of it. Jesus said this. He said, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. Good people, friends, with good hearts bring forth good works. And those are the faithful. So no good works. Don't look for me to tell you that I think you're saved or that you've been changed. Friends, if you've been changed inwardly, 
something has to change outwardly. You don't desire the same things. You're not on the same schedule. Everything changes. You don't have the same, you don't put the same weight of importance on things now that you put on then. Money will always be important, but it's not as important now. Why does this sinful world persist decade after bloody decade? It's due to the mercy of God. People say, how does he allow sin? How does he allow it to continue? It's due to his mercy. He allows it to continue. How is it that God allows such violence and plunder, slaughter of the innocent, attacks on the helpless, the exploitation of the weak? It's because he's enduring with much long suffering the vessels of wrath. And sadly, we have to endure some of that too. It's due to the fact that he's making known the riches of his glory on the vessels of his mercy. Because we're going to praise him whether it gets good or bad. Circumstances aren't going to change that. Because a good man out of the good measure of his heart brings forth good works. Instead of asking, why is this sinful world still here? Ask, why am I still here? Why am I allowed to go on living despite the wickedness of my thoughts and my actions, despite the adultery of my eyes and the fornication of my lifestyle? Why is this world full of envy and strife and thievery and idolatry? You know, we're in a country that's legalized theft. You know how insane that is? I'm not making this up. If you don't know what I'm talking about, see me afterwards. You can legally go into places and steal $1,000 worth of stuff and go out and sell it for two. And if the guy stops you, he goes to jail. Why are we still here? It's because he's giving us time to repent of these things. Now, this is, there's a mystery in these things, but God's long-suffering of evil and of evil men is a theme that's taught throughout Scripture. Remember these words from Genesis? I, I always found these odd. The Amorites are run out of the land by the Israelites very early in their campaigns in Canaan. And then we read, but in the fourth generation, the Amorites will return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. (laughs) In other words, they're not bad enough for me to extinguish them yet. I'm not that sick of them. I guess that's what that means. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Don't complete your iniquity. There's the the moral of that story. God often suffers an evil nation for another season, doesn't he? And there's time in that to repent. There's also ample opportunity to condemn yourself by refusing to to repent. We read this. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham. I always liked when he said that. He's doing all this destruction. Fire and brimstone. Brimstone is sulfur, which ignites and has a really bad stink, by the way. And it falls on these cities. And as he's destroying them, God remembers Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had So God endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath till he could take it no more. Apparently, the iniquity of the Sodomites was filled. While at the same time, he makes known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. And so he surgically removes his beloved elect. Why? 
because he had no power to remove himself. God had to remove him, the sovereignty of God. Have you ever noticed in these relationships, though, that it's only a few? In this case, one. In fact, Lot's wife went with him, but didn't quite make it all the way, right? God, God remembered Abraham, so he saved his nephew Lot, for Abraham's sake. But we learned from Peter, Lot was a righteous man, enduring all this stuff. Um, but God saw the evil in his wife's heart. Remember Lot's wife. I think I preached a series once on remember Lot's wife, Luke said, or Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke. He surgically removes his beloved elect. So all of the cities die, one man comes out. All of the earth is flooded, eight people come out in Noah's time. That's kind of the ratio, right? Wide is the path and easy is the way to destruction. But narrow is the gate and difficult is the way to righteousness. To paraphrase the Lord. What did the Lord say to Jonah? Remember this? Rise, go to Nineveh, that great city. By the way, Nineveh was a phenomenal example of a great ancient city. Walls were something like 20 feet thick, never mind high. It's been excavated. It's in Iraq. Um, That great city and cry out against it, for their wickedness had come up before me. God was waiting. He was enduring with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. We may read, so the people of Nineveh believed God. I would love to see that happen. Maybe one of those guys on the subway that says the end is near and he's a weirdo. Maybe all of a sudden he's the one God chooses to people, you know? He might be right. (laughs) That was Jonah. Come on, Jonah was a bit of a weird guy, right? He had just been sort of digested by a fish. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth, meaning clothes that hurt, instead of nice, fine clothes, right? And he arose from his throne, or or rather, then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. Did you notice the word came to the king of Nineveh? God spoke to the king of a pagan country. He arose from his throne, he laid aside his robe, he covered himself in sackcloth, he sat and in ashes, and then the king and his nobles asked this, who can tell if God may yet turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger that we may not perish? In other words, if we're to go down in flames, we're going to go down in humility and not in pride. That's called repentance, friends. It's not like, well, eat, drink, and be merry. We're going to go down in flames. Let's have one last fling, right? That isn't what they did. If we're to be scoured from our land, then we'll go worshiping God and not cursing him anymore. That's an awesome repentance. And then we read, then God saw their works that they turned from the evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Why didn't he do it? He said he would do it. Why didn't he do it? Because he was enduring with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath and making known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Sadly, talk of wrath has disappeared from pulpits today. Oh, but we're saved. Well, what do you think you're saved from? Saved out of what? How can you be urgent with the gospel if you don't know there's wrath on the other end? 
It's the whole point. Jesus said to the Pharisees, therefore you are witnesses against yourselves. See, this is what's happening. That you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. When he says that, he doesn't mean the natural descendants, although they may have been. He means you hold to their ways. You're the children of their evil. He said, fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers. Imagine putting that out on the sign out front. Serpents, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Boy, there's something to put on the church marquee to get attention. They'll be marching out there. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes, Jesus said. Some of them you'll kill and crucify, and some of them you'll scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. We don't know who that was. There's a lot of Zechariahs in the Bible. I looked it up. There's something like, I don't know, 10 or 12 Zechariahs. It's probably not a biblical person, but something that happened notably in their time. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation, and they did a few decades later in 70 AD. It all came down. Titus's armies came in and burned that temple to the ground, and it's still what's left of it today is what Titus did in those days. <clears throat> So what does this say? It, the, the Lord is building a case against mankind. So that when the final tumult comes upon the earth, there'll be no defense for the wrath that comes upon it. No, you know, I, 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 I think of this differently than I used to, but I don't think people are going to say, why is God being so mean to us? He's, they, I think they're going to say, well, you know, what could we have expect? If there was a God, what else could he have done? That's precisely what Paul referred to in the opening chapters of this epistle where he wrote, therefore you are inexcusable, O man. And in other words, you've done it so long. There's no more excuse. Whoever you are to judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this Oh man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance? You know, I would go back to Eden. Did Adam despise, did Adam despise the riches of God's goodness, of his forbearance, and his judgment of God? It seems he did. He had everything at his disposal, every good thing conceivable, and yet rebelled against God. And that's what the world does in spades when the end comes. Do you despise the riches of his goodness, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? It should have led you one way, but you went another. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. I would say to you here, don't become the Lord's object lesson for inexcusability. You made enough excuses. Now come out and be who you were born to be. Be who you were born again to be.
Do not be in such a rush for the Lord to displace the wicked in the land. You might be among them. Everything good and righteous and just in the character of God urges him toward final destruction. God is holding back his destructive instincts. People say, well, how could God punish sin eternally? I'll tell you how. Because he's eternally offended by it. It's that bad in his sight. He's that holy. It's inconceivable what that holiness really means when we see it. We still won't be able to conceive it, but to conceive of it, but we'll see why he squelched out evil. Everything good and righteous and just in the character of God urges him toward final destruction, which is inevitable. It is coming. But yet he suffers long and endures long with the sins of men. Why? Because it is a display of his glory. Friends, it was never about us. It was always about God's glory. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The people of God of Ezekiel's day had much the same complaint as the people of Paul's day. They said, and this is a quote from Ezekiel 33, 17, the way of the Lord is not fair. Boy, does that sound like kids in the schoolyard. In Paul's day, they said, why have you made me like this? This is on you. It's like, he came to Adam, why did you sin? Well, the woman that you gave me, gave me and I've sinned. I've used that a few times. It, was, it, was, it isn't true now, and it wasn't true then. Guys, if you're doing the wrong thing, it isn't because your wife's making you. You're either the man of your family, the man you were born again to be, or you're not. Spoken from someone who's obviously in charge of his family. I've often imagined that at the judgment, sinners will plead for themselves and offer excuses. I've often thought that. They'll be there, oh, no, but I, I didn't mean I, what I meant. With, I, I often thought that, but I don't think that anymore. Based on this study, I no longer think that. I think the case against the ungodly will be so clear and indisputable that each of them will remain speechless and overwhelmed by the glory of the judge and the sins committed against him. They'll be speechless. It won't be like these congressional investigations where they keep telling us there's a smoking gun, but there's no gun. You'll know. I got a feeling you won't plead for your innocence. You'll just look at it, and the evidence will be overwhelming, and you'll just be stifled. And you'll look down the long, gaping throat of eternity of death. And you'll just start walking in that direction. You know that feeling you get right after you did the wrong thing or said the wrong thing? You know that you think, if I could only go back a few minutes or seconds and do it over? I wish I didn't say it that way. It's going to be taken the wrong way. You ever get that feeling? Or you did the wrong thing, like, oops, shouldn't have done that. At the judgment, when you see your life in the context of eternity, and you see the exceeding shortness of your life, you'll see that it was no sacrifice at all on your part to just have done what God required of you without excuses. You're going to look, you're going to see eternity in the face of Christ, the judge, and you're going to look at your life as the speck that you complained about were overwhelmed by all the things that happened, and you had all the excuses for why you didn't walk with God, and you're going to say, why didn't I just do it? Look how short it is. If I could only do it over, if I could only try again to react differently to the ones God sent me to save me, if only, if only, if only I could do this. 
And then you stand before him in the righteousness of Christ and you'll say, thank God he endured me. Because we're going to look at the same thing the ungodly looks at and know that we are saved from that by the grace of God. You endured me with much long suffering only to bestow upon me the riches of your glory. That's why I think this passage on enduring with long suffering gives us more appreciation that every instinct in God is to destroy sin, but he puts up with it for the sake of the purpose of God according to election and his love of the saints. I'm going to end with some prophecies from St. Peter the Apostle, for the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. He's doing both all the time. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with global warming. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved... What manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct? Did you forget that verse? Since everything around you will be dissolved, and all those who had unholy conduct will be dissolved with them, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat oh the end is coming and the reason peter wrote that is because some said well you know he's really tarrying a long time maybe maybe he gave up on it maybe he's not coming anymore and he said no 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 it's not long for the lord one day is as a thousand years a thousand years one day and he's not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness like you slacker and then he says nevertheless we according to his promise look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It can't go wrong next time because there's a new Adam. Therefore, beloved, look forward to these things. Be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. The Lord suffered for your salvation as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you also. Father, in Jesus' name, you sent us these great prophets to elucidate for us these great prophecies and these promises, Father. Let us take heed to them. If judgment is to begin with the house of God, let it begin with us first, O Lord. Let us fall to our knees in repentance of our sins. And let our works prove who we are and how we got to be who we are. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.